Well, thank you for the welcome to be among you this morning. My first visit here, but it's a joy to come and to share fellowship with you. I bring greetings from the folks at Dawson Mission in Falkirk. I know that you have some of you have family links there, and there are fellowship links there. And I bring to you the greetings of the folks there uh, this morning. I know that some of the other brothers from there come and speak with you from, from time to time. So it's a pleasure to be among that company this morning. Our reading from this morning, we're taking from the book of Acts, two portions from the book of Acts, first in Acts chapter 3, and then a few verses in Acts chapter 4. And so we'll begin at Acts chapter 3 and verse 1, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. (coughs) Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And then in chapter 4 from verse 5. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in their midst, they said, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, By what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. And we look to the Lord to bless the reading of his own word. Although we've read these two sections of uh, Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, we want to concentrate this morning on just one verse. The last verse that we read, verse 12 of chapter 4, Nor is there salvation in any other, For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
And if I was to give a title this morning to what I want to share to you, with you, it might go like this. One verse, two realities. And we want to think about these things together as we look at this one verse. But let's put the verse in context, first of all. As we noticed in Acts chapter 3 and the opening of the, of the chapter, a miracle had been done. And it was a miracle that was done in the power of the name. Peter said uh, to the man, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And the man rose. And not only did he stand, but he leapt. And he praised God. And he entered the temple. Something he would never have been able to do before. Because of his condition, he would have been barred from the temple. But now he was allowed to enter because he was a healed man. And not only was he allowed to enter... But in response to what had happened, he was leaping and he was praising God. Surely he had cause to do that indeed. And this was a man who had been lame from birth, the opening verse of chapter, th uh, the second verse of chapter 3 tells us. Lame from his mother's womb, whom they carried daily to that, uh, to that temple. And so uh, here was a man who, for the very first time in his life, was not only able to stand, but he was able to leap, and he was able to go into the temple. And thereafter, there was an explanation demanded uh, of what had happened. Chapter 4 and verse 7, they say to them, By what power or by what name have you done this? What power or what name has caused this miracle to happen? They understood that these men before them Peter and John were ordinary men just like themselves. But something extraordinary had happened. And so they asked, by what power or by what name has this been done? And that is something that will be critical to our consideration this morning. And the answer that was given to them in chapter 4, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a name they knew, because Peter reminded them it was Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. That's the name by which this miracle had, has happened. And so out of these events, and particularly in terms of the answer that was given by way of explanation to the questions uh, that were asked, we have uh, our subject this morning. One verse, two realities. And it's important in these days uh, to deal in reality. Because all around us, uh, we have a world that is occupied with fantasy. We have an, a world which is occupied with things uh, which are fake. And so it's important for us uh, to focus uh, on realities as we come to consider God's word. And so what are these two realities that we want to think about this morning? Number one, there is a need. And it's the need that all humanity shares. It's the need of salvation. And number two, there is a name. And the name is Jesus. And he is set before us in the Bible 
as the only saviour of the world. So there is a need and there is a name. And we like just for a few moments to think about these things together and to understand a little more about them. Let's look firstly at the need. The need originates out of rebellion against God. And that rebellion against God takes us way back to the beginning and to the Garden of Eden and into the company of Adam and Eve. If you know your Bible well, you remember that God gave to Adam a simple command, very straightforward, very direct, very clear. He commanded him saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Look at the simplicity and, and, and the terms of this command that God gave to Adam. You have plentiful fruit to eat all around you in this garden, more than enough to sustain you. And the prohibition that I give applies to only one tree, to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And don't eat of that tree, because if you do, there will be consequences, and there will be dire consequences. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if you look carefully into the book of Genesis, you will find that at that point in time, Eve was not there. The instruction, the command was given to Adam. And it was his responsibility uh, to pass that command on to his wife Eve. And I'm sure that he did. Because a subsequent conversation that occurs in the book of Genesis uh, seems to prove that very fact. Because as we go into chapter 3 of Genesis, we discover that Satan comes on the scene. And the Bible tells us that Satan deceived Eve. And in the ensuing conversation, references made to this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve said, we can't eat of this. Because God has said, in the day that we eat of that tree, we'll surely die. And so she had been told by Adam what God had said and the command that God had given. But the Bible tells us that Satan deceived Eve. You shall not surely die, he said. Look at the tree. It's good to look at. It's good for food. And if you eat of it, you'll become wise. You will have knowledge of good and evil. You'll become like God. And Eve did just that. She looked at the tree. She saw it was good to behold. She saw it was good for food. And she took some of it. And she gave to her husband, Adam. And he didn't resist. He took it and he ate while Eve was deceived, Adam disobeyed. Disobeyed the command that God had given him. And when we look at that, we ask ourselves, what was it that he really did as he disobeyed that command? In essence, he was saying, I will be independent. I will set my own standards. I will follow my own rules. I will be like God. All of that was inherent in that disobedience that he committed there in the Garden of Eden. While Eve may have been deceived, Adam knew exactly what he was doing. And in direct disobedience to the command of God, he took that, that fruit. And God exposed this rebellion against him. When he came into the garden and he asked, where are you? 
And Adam replied, I was afraid and I hid myself. And God asked, have you eaten of the fruit of that tree? And Adam, I was going to see Adam confessed, but in fact, Adam tried to move the blame. He said, the woman that you gave me, she gave to me and I ate. And Eve said, it was Satan who deceived me and I ate. They each tried to move the responsibility for the actions. But God left them very squarely and firmly upon the shoulders of Adam to whom the initial command had been given. And he told him the consequences of that act. And the consequences were to be exactly as God had said they would be. And so this initial act of rebellion brought disaster upon humanity, brought disaster upon our world. The book of Romans tells us that by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. By this one man's offense, many died. And in the book of Hebrews we read, so that now it is appointed to men once to die, and after this the judgment. God said that disobedience to that command would mean death, not immediate physical death, but death in terms of the relationship which he had with Adam. Spiritually he would die, and so it was. And from then until now, because there is continually no fear of God before the eyes of those who rebel against him, then the sentence of death is pronounced. And so right down to the present day, this need is a reality. A reality because of rebellion against God. Don't we see it all around us in our world Maybe you've experienced it in your own heart from time to time. That you have refused something that God has said. And whenever that happens, consequences follow. Because the wages of sin are discovered. And these things apply from then until now. But this need is also reality because of rejection of God. And specifically, Rejection of his love and rejection of his provision. When we think of the love of God, I'm sure if you are familiar with your Bible at all, these universally known words will come to your mind. The words spoken by Jesus to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Perhaps the best known verse in all of the Bible generally throughout the world. And there is so much contained in that one verse that we can go there and we can find all that God wants us to know as he speaks to us through his son. The fact that he so loved the world, the fact that he gave his only begotten son We've recently celebrated the coming of Jesus into the world. In a couple of months we'll celebrate or we will remember his death on the cross at Calvary. And it was through the coming into the world and through the death at the end of his life that God gave his only begotten son. Such that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And yet... Just two chapters later, in John chapter 5 and verse 40, Jesus said, 
you will not come to me that you might have life. Here in love, God has made this great offer, has extended this wonderful invitation to come and to believe in his son and to receive the gift of everlasting life. But Jesus said, you will not come that you might have life. And isn't it still true today that people will not come that they might have life? Perhaps you've experienced resisting the love of God in your own life from, from an early age. Perhaps you knew early in your lives that God loved you and that God sent his son for you. But you resisted that message until finally the Spirit of God spoke to you in convicting ways and brought you to know the love of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the rejection is a rejection of the love of God offered in the Son of God. Not only a rejection of his love, however, but a rejection of the provision that God has made to answer the need that all of humanity experiences. And that provision, we're reminded of it by Peter in his first epistle. Uh, he says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Similarly, Paul in the book of Romans says, God demonstrates his love toward us. That love we've just thought about. His love toward us. In that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And yet, when you go back into biblical times, and just a little further over in the book of Acts, you'll find that when that message is preached, it's rejected. Paul, yes, Paul was, was, you may remember, in Athens at the place called Areopagus. He was there reasoning with the people who wanted to hear or to tell some new thing. And as he spoke to them about the Lord Jesus, about his death and resurrection, the Bible says that on the one hand, some mocked the message. On the other hand, people said, we'll hear you again of this matter. But they were unwilling at that moment in time to make the decision. So on the one hand, mockery. On the other hand, procrastination. But both of them together, rejecting the provision that God had made. <clears throat> and then as Paul later spoke of what had happened in his experience before Governor Felix and before King Agrippa, they similarly both in slightly different ways rejected what he had to say. Felix responded by saying, Paul, much learning has made you mad. As he spoke of how God, of how Jesus had appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he said, much learning has made you mad. And similarly, as we've just noticed, Agrippa said, almost you persuade me to be a Christian, but not altogether. Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. And neither men took that step of faith to accept the amazing provision of God in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's so today. Don't people still, to, still refuse to accept what God says in the person of his Son and what he offers to us as a wonderful gift? People will, will look at it and they will say, this is not for me. It may be okay for you, but not for me. People will say, well, I don't want to think about it just at the moment. Maybe 
before the end of life. I'll think about these things more carefully. But none of us knows when the end of life comes. And within our family, my wife's cousin, on Christmas Day, surrounded by his grandchildren, died suddenly, just like that, from a heart attack. Got up from the table, walked out into the conservatory and fell and no more. And we go to his funeral tomorrow in the will of God. Such is the uncertainty of life. But God calls to us and says, he's made this wonderful provision. Can I ask everyone here this morning, do you recognize your need of that provision? Have you availed yourself of what God has done for you in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you assured, convinced altogether, unlike King Agrippa, convinced altogether that you are a Christian? Because that's where we need to be in our relationship with God. We need to understand that the need that has existed from the beginning is reflected in our own lives and reflected in the world all around us. But God, in love, has made provision for all mankind and extends this offer of eternal life to all who will receive it. And it's wise to accept it because as we look into Scripture, we can see that this need is an ongoing reality because of the reward from God. The message of Scripture is stark and plain. The wages of sin, Romans says, is death. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus and he said, He who does not believe is condemned already. Condemned why? Because he has not believed in the name and we'll come to that in a moment, in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And as we've noted already, Hebrews tells us, it's appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. That's the reward and the just reward for sin that God has prescribed. It's just because he warned back in the beginning that this would be the consequences of sin. It's just because all the way through Scripture, right down to the present day, he continues to remind us that the wages of sin is death. The consequence of rebellion against God, the consequence of rejecting his love and his provision is that death is our chosen portion. Not simply something that is exercised in the wrath of God, it does exist in that way. But it's our chosen portion as we decide that we will not accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour. And so these are the grim prospects, humanly speaking. And they cannot, be under, they cannot be avoided and they underline for us the extent of the need that exists for everyone who is born into our world. This need is for salvation because of a disrupted and destroyed relationship with God. Now, if that were the only reality we have to consider this morning, then it would be a dark and gloomy reality indeed. But we're glad that our one verse presents us with two realities. And the second reality is there is a name. That name is Jesus. And Jesus was given that name because he came to be the saviour. Think of the fact that this is the name by which he was identified for all of his life. 
At his birth, both Mary and Joseph were told, you will call him Jesus. And so the Bible records in Matthew chapter 1 that when Jesus was born, Joseph called him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. This was the name by which he was known during his life. John tells us in John 6 that the people questioned when they saw him, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? It's the name by which he was identified at his death, as Pilate had written above the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It's the name by which he was identified after he had risen and ascended into heaven. As the angels spoke to the watching disciples, they said to them, This same Jesus will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. (coughs) And it's the name by which he was identified in the early preaching of the apostles. In Acts chapter 2, as Peter preaches to the crowd gathered at the day of Pentecost, he spoke of Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested before you by signs and wonders which God did by him among you. And so there is this name. And why the importance of this name? Because as we have noticed already, it means he shall save his people from their sins. It wasn't a name chosen at random. It was a name chosen with a purpose, chosen with a meaning. We either like or dislike our own names, and some of them have been chosen randomly. Some of them reflect our family heritage. Some of them reflect simply the likes and dislikes of our parents. And some of them have a meaning all to themselves. But this name, the name of Jesus, is that that name that was given to him at his birth, that God said he must bear, because he shall save his people from their sins. The name by which he was identified. (coughs) But it's also a name in which power is invested. Did you notice that when the lame man looked to Peter and John, Peter said to him, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Initially there may have been disappointment as the man heard the first words, Silver and gold I do not have, because that was the best that he was expecting. He was looking to them for some alms. That's what he thought they might give him for the support of his existence. But they gave him something more wonderful, something much better, something that not only would suffice for just a moment or two, but something that would affect him for the rest of his life. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand. I wonder what the man felt as Peter took him by the right hand. It doesn't seem that he resisted in any way. He lifted him up and the man stood on ankles that had never had any strength whatsoever all of his life. And these ankles not only had the strength to bear him as he stood there, but they had the strength to support him as he walked and leaped and went into the temple praising God. This was the power invested in the name of Jesus. And as the people looked on and saw what had happened, they were looking with wonder and amazement. That wonder and amazement would be justifiable. 
I suspect they had never seen anything like this before. They had, never not, they had perhaps not been around the Lord Jesus in the miracles that he performed during the time that he lived on earth. But whether or not this was something totally unusual, and in this man who stood there and walked and leaped and praised God, they saw before their very eyes the power of the name of Jesus. And thirdly, we notice that this is the name through which salvation comes. The name by which Jesus is identified. The name in which power is invested. And the name through which salvation comes. As we see it in our one verse. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name, but in this name, there is salvation offered. And how does this salvation come? How do we make it our own? It happens just in exactly the same way as physical healing happened for the lame man here in Acts chapter 3. Peter explains when the healing is questioned. He says, and in his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which, come, which came through him has given this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. His name and faith in his name has brought about this miracle that you see. Jesus himself presented to Nicodemus the alternative to that. He said, he who believes in him, that's Jesus, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the name through which salvation comes. But faith in this name must be followed by confessing the name. In the book of Romans, we are reminded there that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Certainly and categorically, you will be saved. If you believe, that's the faith. If you confess with your mouth, that's the confession that's necessary. And what do we see bound up in this confession? It goes beyond mere assent. It involves acknowledgement of sin and turning from that sin. It involves belief in our heart, a deep down certain conviction. Belief in our heart. And belief of what? Belief of what the Bible tells us, that God sent his son to be the saviour of the world. That God gave his son for that salvation at Calvary. And that God invites us now to respond to the name of Jesus as the only one who, through whom salvation comes. And when we do that, then we are saved unquestionably and undeniably. But as we notice, there's a word of warning that sounded in our verse. It says, there is no other name. People will try to tell us today that there are many ways back to God. You choose yours, I'll choose mine. The Bible here says, and elsewhere it confirms it, there is no other name 
other than the name of Jesus. And sadly, then as now, that's an unacceptable message. If we'd read a little further down in Acts chapter 4, we would have discovered how the authorities, the rulers, the chief priests, and those who were gathered there around Peter and John responded to this. They couldn't deny the miracle that had taken place. And so what's our next course of action? Their next course of action, they said, so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. They understood somehow that there was power in this name. They understood that something happened when preaching in this name took place. And they wanted to subdue that. They wanted to silence that. They wanted to remove it from their midst. They were threatened by it. And so they said, let's command them, threaten them, that they speak to no man in this name. But what did the disciples do? Acts chapter 4, verses 24 to 31 says, they preached, they prayed, they were empowered, and they preached. Rather than being silenced, they were confirmed in their conviction to go and preach in the name of Jesus. And that's why today we come with the same message. Because we understand there is no other name under heaven whereby we may be saved. But gladly there was another reaction. And that reaction we find in Acts chapter 4 and verse 4. It says, however many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. What happened in the lives of these people? They heard the word. And what word was it that they heard? It was the word that Peter spoke when he was explaining the miracle that took place. When he said to them, it's his name through faith in his name that has made this man strong whom you now see and know. The evidence is before you. The man's strong. He's standing, he's leaping, he's praising God. How did this happen? It happened because of the name of Jesus, because of faith in his name. And the people who heard that message and heard it themselves in faith, they believed, and there were about 5,000 who responded to the message. And that's also why we come and preach it today. Because we likewise believe that still there is power in that name. And we still believe that those who hear it and who hear it by faith and who respond to it in believing, then they come to know the salvation that God has provided. And so in summary this morning, these are the realities in this verse. There is a need. And it is salvation. And it's a need that exists for all of humanity, including you, if you haven't already experienced it. There is a name. The name is Jesus. And he is the only <coughs> saviour of the world. The need is acute, as acute as it ever was, because of rebellion against God. 
We had a friend come and speak to us at Dawson Mission just some little time back, uh, a Christian undertaker. And he said that the most requested song at funerals is, I did it my way. And that's exactly how people respond in our world. In rebellion against God, I'll do it my way because I know best. There's not only rebellion against God, but this need is acute because of the rejection of God. People in essence saying, I don't want the provision that you have made. I've got all that I need. I'm self-sufficient. There's nothing that you can give me that makes any difference to my life. And they're only thinking about this life and the few short years that they live here upon earth, disregarding totally the fact that beyond this life there is a whole eternity. And that eternity is the provision that God has made for those who will receive his Son. And the need is acute because of the reward of sin that comes from God. The wages of sin being death. And people simply say, I don't fear God. I don't have any fear of God. Romans chapter 3 confirms that to us. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Are you here this morning and you feel, I can do it my way. I don't need what God has provided. And I'm not afraid of the consequences. Can I urge you? Can I urge you this morning in the love of God to respond to what he he has done in the person of his son and come to know him through our Lord Jesus Christ. For he has the name that is unique. There's none other like it because by it Jesus is identified as the saviour of the world. In it there is invested power and authority and especially the power of salvation. See what Peter is saying here. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. As well as the identity of this name, as well as the investment associated with it, there is also an imperative. And the imperative is we must be saved and it's only in this name that we can be saved and can know God's gift of eternal life. And as we bring these two realities together in closing, notice that we are dealing with eternal things. It's our destiny, our destiny forever, that rests on what God has done. The provision that he has made in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he loves us dearly, each one, from his very heart. Will we reject that love, fail to respond to it, and ignore what he has done? Or will we this morning have our need met through faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? The choice is ours, is yours. Amen. sing our final hymn which is very apt to what we have heard this morning in Christ alone you will stand after introduction 1346 in Christ alone
Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is indeed no other name given under heaven whereby we might be saved. We pray before we go from this place that every one of us can see that Christ is real in my life. Bless us and continue with us during the rest of this day. In your name we pray. Amen.